We're going to continue on into Matthew 5 this morning. Remember as we approach this passage uh, that Jesus has just described how his followers will experience persecution, uh, teaching about this in the last of his statements of blessing, which we call Beatitudes in Matthew 5, 3 through 10. It's where those occur. Remember it says in Matthew 5, 10, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then our Lord Jesus switched, as we saw a couple of weeks ago, from the third person to the second person and applied this blessing directly to his followers who were present with him there on the mountainside when he said in verses 11 and 12, not saying blessed are those now, but saying blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say kinds of all kinds of evil against you falsely for my name's sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And this morning we're going to see how, after giving such strong and potentially frightening instruction to his followers, Jesus continues to address them in a personal and direct manner with more words of encouragement, stressing that although they will experience persecution, as he said, not only is there this reward in heaven for them to look forward to, uh, but for other reasons it will be worth it as well. Uh, Jesus never asks us to suffer simply for the sake of suffering. There's always a point. It's always for our good and for God's glory in some way. So he always has a, a good and loving purpose in it, a purpose that makes it Worthwhile, And as I said, that purpose is our good, but ultimately God's glory. And this becomes clear in verses 13 through 16, which is going to be our focus today. I'm actually just going to zero in on verse 13. I planned on covering through verse 16, but my sermon got so long I did one of those holy chops and cut it in two. Uh, I have a tendency to make sermons that are just way too long, and sometimes I go ahead with it, but more often than not these days I cut them in half. Um, and that's what happened to this one, but hopefully it won't feel like it's been chopped in half to you. That's the hope. But I'm still going to read verses 13 through 16. Remember, falling right after um, this teaching about persecution for righteousness sake, for Jesus' sake. He says, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. By men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. And that's the ultimate purpose, right, of the Christian life, right there, of everything he's been talking about in these Beatitudes, and that's the ultimate purpose of our suffering and persecution we may experience. It's all ultimately so that men may see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. That's why we exist. It's the very best thing for us. And as I've, I've shown in the past in my teachings, particularly on like the Lord's Prayer that's later in this same Sermon on the Mount, God's glory and our good are not two separate ends. They are so intertwined that they are one. The very best thing for all of us 
is to seek the glory of God. As we seek the glory of God, we seek our best. We seek our own good. And if we really want to seek our own good, we'll want to seek the glory of God. They're the same thing. God and his plan has made it that way. So what's best for us is best for him. What a glorious plan it is. And we have to keep that in mind as we go through difficulties in this life. We have to keep our purpose in mind. Let's pray and then we'll try to understand, verse 13, what Jesus means by this. Holy Father, I do thank you so much for your great love for us. I thank you that you sent your son Jesus to be born of a virgin, to, to live a perfectly sinless life. And because he was perfect, he was able to die as our perfect sacrifice. And then he rose from the dead and that he ascended to your right hand where he ever lives to intercede for us. I thank you for the opportunity to think about his ascension and his intercession for us this morning and to praise him for it, to praise you, Lord God, for all you've done for us through your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that you've worked in our hearts through the power of your Holy Spirit to enable us to see and enter the kingdom, to trust in Jesus. And we ask that you would work in our hearts now to enable us to understand your word as we should, to take it to heart, to become more like Christ as a result, to better glorify you as a result. We ask all these things for our good and for your glory and in the name of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. When I look at this passage, and it makes me think of a term that I heard probably before then, but certainly when I served in the U.S. Navy, that was back during the Reagan administration, so that sort of dates me. Uh, we used to refer to a veteran sailor as an old salt. Uh, it's a saying that has probably been around for centuries, um, and it obviously comes from the fact that sailors are often covered with salt from the sea air, and that's a very uncomfortable state to be in. I was in it many times. Uh, to walk, walk from being out on deck, working out on deck all day, and then walk inside and just feel the salt in your hair and on your face and in your clothes and, and want to wash it off. <laughs> uh, and so you can see why they would have called sailors an old salt. It's not because we were fleeing from Sodom and Gomorrah and look back or something like that, right? Um, but I, I give that example to show you that such a, a saying demonstrates the fact that we can sometimes use salt as a metaphor to refer to people, right? So it shouldn't be all that surprising to us, right? We should be able to identify with Jesus having done that in this verse. Salt is a metaphor used with reference to Christians, and not because they're sailors, although some of them did, but they were in the Sea of Galilee, and that's a freshwater body of water. Um, but in some way, he's comparing his followers to salt. And I think there are a couple of points he appears to be making about our, our witness by means of this metaphor. The first one is that, that we have a preserving influence in the world. And I'll seek to demonstrate that I, th I think that's probably gets at what he means best. We have a preserving influence in the world. And that secondly, we have this influence only if we maintain that, which makes us distinct. So first of all, we, ha we have a preserving influence in the world. And I take this from the use of his metaphor in the first part 
verse 13, when he says, you are the salt of the earth. Now, Jesus makes emphatic use of this second person plural pronoun here when he says, you are the salt of the earth. And in this way, as we've seen, he continues the emphasis from the preceding verses, which we just read, where he said, blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Uh, Now he's continuing with that emphasis, only even more emphatically, he's stressing the you. You are the salt of the earth. You get the impression here that he's saying, you're persecuted because you're salt. But these things go together. But I think he's also, by means of the sustained emphasis, stressing the reason that his disciples must persevere in righteousness even while enduring suffering and persecution. It's because they are salt in this world. Again, an obvious metaphor. But how are Christians like salt? Um, I'm suggesting that it's because primarily that they have a preserving influence in the world. And I think That's one of the primary, perhaps the primary use for salt in first century Palestine. D.A. Carson offers a helpful description in his commentary on this passage when he writes that, quote, salt was used in the ancient world to flavor foods and even in small doses as fertilizer. Above all, above all, salt was used as a preservative, rubbed into meat. A little salt would slow decay. Um, Now, when I think about what Jesus might be meaning by applying this metaphor to believers, um, I think it's not because we make the world taste better, right? Like the candy man can, you know, or something like that. Make the world taste good or something. I don't think that's exactly what he, what he means. It seems to me that it's probably this primary use that they had for salt to slow the decay of the food that they ate. I think that our Lord Jesus views the world as being in decay, and his disciples as a preserving influence which helps to slow the decay. To me, that's probably the best way to take this metaphor. Uh, Such a perspective shouldn't surprise us either, should it? Not if if we know our Bibles well, uh, and not if we've lived in the world for any length of time. (laughs) Uh, We can see all around us that the world in which we live is in a constant state of moral decay, Every now and then in certain parts of the world, things get better for a while, and then they decay again. Uh, That's the history of our country. Got off to a good start. Things were getting better and better, and now they're getting into decay again. And that's what happens, and that shouldn't surprise us. Scripture makes this clear. Um, A key text on this very issue is uh, the first chapter of Romans. I'm going to read a section of that to you. It, it reads like a description of the history of the United States, in a way. It reads like the description of lots of cultures, actually, around the world over time, which have decayed and disappeared. In Romans 1, beginning in verse 18, we're told, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. Uh, Paul's assumption here is that there's certain truth that all men know, and those who deny it are simply suppressing it, but they really know it deep. They're trying not, not to admit they know it. Right? Um, 
He says, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because, although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God. They didn't fulfill the ultimate purpose for human beings, to glorify God. Nor were thankful but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Can you imagine doing that? I mean, we should be shocked at this, but we're not because we're so used to that being the way things are in the world. Therefore, God also gave them up. And this is an act of judgment. You want life without me? It's like they're on a leash. He lets go of the leash a little bit more. You want life without me? My judgment on you is to give you what you want. Life without me. Right? And we're going to see this repeated in this passage. Therefore, God also gave them up, in verse 24, to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts, to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen to that, Paul says. For this reason, God gave them up. Second act of judgment here. To vile passions. For even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men leaving the natural use of the woman burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which is due. We've seen a lot of that in our country, haven't we? And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over, for a third time we're reading this, to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents. Listen up, kids. (laughs) Undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who, knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. What we just read is a description of moral decay that's always going on in the world. And God will do a gracious work and make things better somewhere, and then it'll decay again. We saw this. This is the history of Israel over and over again. This is the history of the Roman world. It's the history of our culture. It's the history of humanity, everywhere, all the time. This is the kind of world that Jesus says we're to be present in as salt, slowing the decay, asserting a positive influence in society. He knows, of course, that we're going to encounter incredible opposition which is why he has so strongly stressed the fact that we will be persecuted for our faith. In a world like Paul's describing there, people who speak up don't do so well. People who act differently seem to, just through their actions, be judging those around them, whether they say anything or not. 
And so Jesus knows we're going to be persecuted, and that's why he stresses it. But he wants us to know that we're blessed when this happens. We shouldn't see it as some horrible thing, but as a blessing. And he wants us to be encouraged by the fact that God has a plan to use even that persecution and suffering to maintain and further his kingdom in the world. We could say that by the grace of God and the power of his spirit working within us, our very presence in the world makes it a better place. Think think of a world like Paul described without any believers in it. What a terrible place that would be. As terrible as it is now, it would be a lot more terrible without true followers of Christ in the world. As R.T. France put it in his commentary, disciples, if they are true to their calling, make the earth a purer and more palatable place. And with this in mind, then, we need to remember the second important point here. I think we're in the world to have this preserving influence. But secondly, we, we have this preserving influence only if we maintain that which makes us distinct. We don't do any good if we look like everyone else around us and act like everyone else around us. We cease to be salted. Jesus says in the second part of the verse, but if salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. Now this at first seems kind of surprising to us because I don't know how long I've left salt sitting on a shelf before, but when I try it, it always still tastes like salt to me, right? Uh, I think D.A. Carson is, again, very helpful in his commentary when he writes this. Strictly speaking, salt cannot lose its saltiness. Sodium chloride is a stable compound. I think, I think when he did his bachelor's, it was in chemistry, so he would know. But, but most salt in the ancient world derived from salt marshes or the like, rather than by evaporation of salt water, and therefore contained many impurities. The actual salt, being more soluble than the impurities, could be leached out, leaving a residue so dilute it was of little worth. So it's not the salt itself. What they called salt had salt in it, right? But it wasn't pure salt. And the pure salt could leach out of it and be left with something that didn't really taste very good, right? That's what Jesus is talking about in this first century culture. But notice in just saying this how Jesus anticipates our struggle. We're here to be salt, and we're going to be persecuted because of that. And so what is our tendency going to be? Let's not be so salty anymore. I don't want to be an old salt, right? I, I, want, to, I want to not hurt. I want to not be thought badly of. I want everybody to like me, which I don't, I admit it, I want everybody to like me. I kind of like it when people like me. So if you feel the same way I do, you can understand why it would be tempting, right? Uh, We all want to be liked. We all want to be thought well of. We all want to be treated well. But to pursue that first, instead of the glory of God first, uh, makes us become unsalty. We lose our purpose in the world. 
we no longer fulfill it. That's what Jesus is getting at here. Jesus is graciously warning us here that if due to the world's influence we have the saltiness, as it were, leached out of us, if we lose our distinctive character, we will also lose that which makes us the kind of influence in the world that he has called us to be. He knows the battle we're up against. He fought it himself. He was persecuted all the time for being salt in the world. He knows what the struggle is like. He anticipates that we'll have a struggle. He overcame it without sin. We usually sin. But we can't have victory if we continue to trust him. So we can fail to be salt if we, if we allow the world to kind of press us into its own mold and make, you know, we become more and more like the world to the point where they can't tell the difference between us and anyone else when they look at our lives. But we may fail to be salt in, an, in another way as well. Rather than slowly becoming more like the world, we may simply retreat from, from it. You know, I think a book was written a few years ago along these lines, it seemed to me. Was it called a Benedict Option? <laughs> The monks did this. They just retreated from the world and had their little holy communities. Well, that's not being salt. Not to the world, anyway. We have to remember, though, that the world is exactly where Jesus wants us to be. He doesn't want us to retreat from the world, He doesn't want us to go off and live in a monastery away from all the terrible things in society. Remember what he said in the night before he gave up his life for us on the cross. He prayed what is often called his high priestly prayer. In John 17, beginning in verse 15, he said this about his disciples and those who would believe, all Christians of all time, who he ultimately has in mind here. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. You ever meet a Christian that thinks they're being sanctified, never reads their Bible? They're lying to you. We're sanctified by their truth. God's word is truth. And then Jesus said, as you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself that they also may be sanctified by the truth. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's all of us. He wants us in the world, but not of the world. We we must therefore never lose our saltiness due to the pressure to conform to this world. We must not allow the world to influence us so that our witness for Christ is diluted. We must not retreat from the world either. Now, it's not bad to take a little vacation from it, (laughs) right? We all need that. I mean, living apart from the world where you're no good to the world. You don't even have the opportunity to be salt then. But also say, 
we should also avoid becoming bitter and abrasive. Some Christians do that. It's as they are trying to be witnesses and they encounter persecution over time, rather than just loving their enemies as Jesus teaches and continuing to lovingly present the gospel, they become embittered toward them, abrasive toward them. Uh, Someone has said that when a Christian's salt has lost its savor, too often he tries to save the world with pepper. You get his point, right? We know what he means, whoever said that. Um, Often Christians may become so frustrated as they lose their Christian edge through the influence of the world or as they encounter bad feedback from the world that they resort to shrill attacks and abrasiveness, even though that's no substitute for Christ-like character. No, it doesn't mean there's not a a time for saying hard things. And even in in an angry manner, Jesus did that. But usually, if you look in the Gospels, Jesus reserved those kind of reactions for people who should know better, the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees. With a woman at the well, he was very different. And we need to learn that kind of wisdom. There is a time for saying really strong things, and in a very strong way, and even being angry sometimes when we say them. But that's typically reserved for religious hypocrites in Jesus' example. And that's probably where we should keep it too lest we seek to save the world with pepper, as that guy said, right? Um, Such an approach usually has the opposite effect that is intended anyway. Instead of drawing people to the truth, it just drives them away. Uh, I, you know, if somebody sees an angry, bitter, resentful person, they don't want to be like that person. They got enough people like that in their lives. They don't need another one who purports to tell them the truth. Right? So it falls on deaf ears. On the other hand, however, Jesus has warned us in this passage that if we're truly like him, we will be hated and persecuted. So we must never assume that a negative response necessarily means that we're losing our saltiness. Usually it means the opposite. Usually when the enemy's mad at us, it means we're on the right track. As we saw a couple of weeks ago, when we looked into some other writings like Peter, he said it's, it's, a, it's not bad if you're suffering for good, for doing good, but if you're suffering as an evildoer, what good is that to you, right? And there are some Christians out there who suffer not really for their faith, but because they're a jerk. <laughs> That's not being salt in the world. But if you're truly trying to be like Jesus, and you should expect to suffer for it, especially these days. The more de- decay we see in the culture around us, the worse their reaction is going to be. The more they hate the truth, the more they're going to hate the people that speak it and live it. And Jesus wants us to expect that, and he doesn't want us to be discouraged when it happens. Quite the opposite. He wants us to be encouraged. He wants us to see it's because we're fulfilling God's purpose in our lives. We're being who we're meant to be in the world. We're being like him. And that's a good thing. And we should feel good about it. And then we could do like the apostles did when they were beaten by the Sanhedrin for preaching the gospel and rejoice that they were worthy to suffer that way.
because they knew what it meant. They listened to what Jesus said in this teaching. And instead of being discouraged, they were encouraged. We're getting it right. They're treating us just like they treated him. And for the same reasons. And they praised God for it. It's my hope and prayer that as a result of looking into this text today, by the grace of God and the power of his spirit, that we'll just renew our efforts and pray to God for more zeal to be salt in this world, to actually be what we're called to be. Now, when I look around this room, I see a lot of old salts. Not, not in the Navy sense of the word, but in the Christian sense of the word. I think that most of the people in this congregation, I don't know all of you as well as, as I know everyone else you know, here, but uh, some of you I've only met more recently. Uh, but uh, I think this church has got a lot of salty people in it. And I'm thankful for that. But Jesus knows we can get discouraged, right? Jesus knows that we often fail and will fail. He knows the temptations that we have. And so we all need to hear it. Even the saltiest Christian in the room knows that deep down they need this encouragement because they feel the pressure around them mounting more and more all the time. And they need to be reminded they can keep on being what Jesus wants them to be, knowing that it's worth it. It's worth it for our good and for God's glory. So hang in there, you old salt. Don't give up. Keep at it. Keep up the good fight of faith. Let's pray. Holy Father, if there's anyone here this morning who's been thinking of times when they failed to be a good witness, and I've had many of those times myself, and please help me and them to repent and tell you, we're sorry, Lord, that we failed you in this way. And we ask that you would forgive us and enable us to have a a renewed zeal to just live out the Christian life the way you've called us to live it out, to speak when those opportunities come, to, and not stay silent, to share your love with other people, even if they despise us for it. And for those, Lord, who've been doing pretty well, but they're getting tired, they're they're tempted to grow weary in well-doing, We all get tired, and the Apostle Paul anticipated that and warned us against it. So renew our strength, I pray. Renew our zeal. Help Emmanuel Baptist Church to be the saltiest church in this town in all the right ways, I pray. We'll give you all the glory for it because we know that you alone deserve it, that it's only through you working in us that anything good in us happens at all. And we are thankful, and we do praise you for it. We ask all these things in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you once again for your kind attention.